Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Dash Long is a skier who's been doing it and going big for a long time. And tomorrow, October 8th, is the online release of Dash's latest film, Stone's Throw. So I spoke to Dash about this new film of his and about ski films in general, which, as you're about to hear, Dash thinks about a lot. We talk about his coming up during the heyday of the free skiing revolution in Tahoe. We talk about ski design and the DPS Koala 119 that Dash has been working on and more. And so let's go ahead and get to my conversation with the star of Stone's Throw, Dash Long. Well, Dash, how are you today and where are you today? Hey, man, I am hanging out in Salt Lake City and uh, just at my house here. I'm working from home today so I could do this with you and uh, I'm doing wonderful. And you have a movie premiere. Let's talk a little bit about this. What have you been working on here? I signed with DPS skis. Uh, last year was my first season on their uh, skis and working with them. Um, and with that came the opportunity to do a cinematic episode. Um, if you know about about their cinematics film series um, or not, they've been doing it for six years uh, about. And they make a series of short films each year, maybe two or three. Um, so I was able to to in conjunction with what we'd been working on with skis, also make one of these episodes. Um, and because I'm kind of a maniac uh, <laughs> and I have grandiose visions, um, I wanted to do something really special. Um, so I approached Sweetgrass to produce the film, um, ran into each other actually early season last year, told them that I had signed with DPS and that I was going to be making this and they were hyped on the idea, um, jumped on board pretty quick. Um, and then, uh, called my longtime friends and family at TGR and let them know as well. And they wanted to be a part of it somehow, some way. So ultimately we have a DPS cinematic episode produced by Sweetgrass Productions and uh, distributed by Teton Gravity Research as our media partner. One of the things that I have come to learn and appreciate about you is uh, you think a lot about ski films. This is, this is not some, lest anyone think like, oh yeah, we just kind of go out and shoot some cool footage. That would be not at all representative of your uh, approach and your thoughtfulness about this stuff. Uh, would, you, would you say that's fair? <laughs> yeah, I think that's, I think that's pretty fair. Um, this is what I think about. I mean, this is my medium uh, as far as a creative outlet. Um, and yeah, when I think about skiing, I think about it in the context of ski films. Um, that's like the pinnacle of what I want to do. There's a lot of other little subsets and tiers that kind of add up to this ultimate vision. And a lot of that has to do with product too. Um, and, and whatever, you know, uh, 
but yeah, when I think about terrain and then I think about what you could do on it and then I think about how it would be shot on, on a digital cinema camera. Let me ask you then, the title of this new film is called Stone's Throw. Why Stone's Throw? Basically, um, the, the overview of this piece um, is that, you know, we wanted to make this film for the diehard skier. The skier that chooses to live in a mountain town or a city close to um, his playground or her playground where they can have a job, but also um, be able to play, you know, go, go out and, and live their passion in the mountains. Um, and really uh, the, the part about it that makes sense for me that seemed like the, the natural place to start here um, was I, in signing with DPS skis. Um, my ultimate goal was to uh, work with a, a local brand and refocus my energy in skiing and efforts to produce content, whatever, locally. Um, and that kind of was motivated by the fact that I have a little family now. Um, and then on top of that, a couple of years ago, I had to uh, sort of set down the full-time ski career in order to make and make a choice for my family, and that was to take a job here locally. Um, I have worked uh, in real estate um, and then done my my ski stuff on the side. Um, the the part of the film that I guess is you know relates to me is that I can, I can use this playground um, to its fullest and still work a full-time job and have a family. And so really Salt Lake City is what makes that a possibility. Um, because I live in a, like a pretty major metropolitan area, I wouldn't call it major, major, but uh, I live in a city um, and I'm 30 minutes from really cool ski terrain, like badass mountains, um, you know, that are pretty steep and have sick features. I could actually go about these crazy dreams of mine and try to, you know, make them a reality while, con while continuing to work and support my family. And so stone's throw, uh, you know, the mountains are just a stone's throw from the city here and that's what makes it possible. Um, I think my favorite part of that entire answer is when you said living here lets me do my ski stuff. Uh, that's like the most understated way to put, I think, your relationship with skiing. So maybe this is a good opportunity to back up for a minute. Why don't we talk a little bit about your career, where you grew up, how you got into skiing, and maybe we'll take that into how you got into filming. I grew up, uh, I was born in, um, in the Bay Area. Um, we lived in Oakland, California until we were about uh, six or so. Um, and then we ended up moving to Lake Tahoe. We had already gone up there and started skiing um, in the winters because my mother's family uh, loved Lake Tahoe and her parents actually had a little condo there. When we moved up there, 
my mom took a job at the ski resort and we were able to get, you know, free passes. And from that, that very moment, I just, skiing was my thing. You know, I, uh, she tells, she tells the story like that. I would just, I'd go to work with her on the weekends and she, she'd get there early and I would just be waiting. Um, and as soon as the lift started spinning, I'd go out and then, at the end of the day, she'd be sitting in the in the special tickets window, and like, okay, it's four o'clock. Where is he? And and the the hill would be like emptying out, and then I'd be coming down like after everyone's off the hill because I would just stay up there as long as I could. Um, and that was before I was on a team or anything. I'd just ski by myself. Um, and then, kind of really shortly thereafter, she figured out how to get us on a ski team program. And I raced for a little while. Um, that was just, you know, really about, we loved hanging out with friends and, uh, I didn't like racing that much because I, I remember telling my mom, I'm a good skier. I know I'm better than a lot of these kids. How come I'm not winning? And she's like, well, you're not going as fast as they are. And so, um, that pissed me off. And, uh, cause I was like, I know I have better form, you know, uh, as a little kid, I'm talking pretty little, like seven, six, seven, eight. Um, and then, uh, in fifth grade, um, after I was like ditching training to ski bumps, my mom helped start the freestyle team at Alpine Meadows where she worked, um, with a guy named Clay Beck, um, whose dad, Craig Beck made ski films actually. Um, but that wasn't a, a really big part of the freestyle team, but he's, you know, he's an integral part of filmmaking in, in skiing for sure. Um, and Beck's rock at Squaw, which is the huge cliff is named after him. So anyway, he made some really sick stuff back in the day, but, uh, yeah. So his son Clay Beck, helped start the freestyle team. My mom was a part of that at Alpine Meadows. Um, and then I, I got really into that. I mean, you could jump and do tricks. So that was my world for a while. Um, and then when Alpine Meadows decided to allow snowboarding, that's when my brother, uh, got into snowboarding. So there's some freestyle influence there. We were both super into skateboarding by that point. Um, so in the off season, like in the summer, we'd skate. And then in the winter we'd ski and snowboard. Um, and then we decided to switch to the Squaw Valley team. Um, I wanted to be on their freestyle team. The, the head coach there was really strong. He was putting out a lot of top guys. And I, I kind of felt a little disconnection from that guy, Clay, even though, you know, in hindsight, it was a great experience. But uh, they had a snowboard park there. And my brother was on the snowboard team. And what my brother was doing just seemed way cooler. Um, and I just, once I got hooked in the, in the park, it was over. Um, and I, I wasn't training anymore. I was just like ditching race training to ski bumps. I was just, I was ditching training and going to the park And my, I mean, I think that last year I did freestyle, my plaque said dash long, AKA biggest slacker. And then, <laughs> 
And then the following year, actually, so those are two years in a row that I was slacking clearly in their mind. The, it said, my plaque said, most untapped potential. Wow. <laughs> it's hilarious. Like, that's pretty wild to tell a young teenager, right? Yeah. Like, that's how it was, I guess. Hard-ass coach, you know, who did produce a lot of Olympians, by the way. Um, Shannon Barkey, uh, a lot of people were on the team. Johnny Mosley. Um, anyway, so uh, once I got to squad, there were pros around. Um, and when I was in the park, it was like CR Johnson was on the team. He had just quit. Um, he, was, he came from the freestyle team. Um, Mike LaRoche uh, was another kid who was just a couple years older than me who got sponsored by Line. Um, and he, he kind of got sponsored that around the same time, but, um, was watching him through and down and, and, uh, he was super badass back then still is works for Armada now. Um, and then bigger name pros like Clint Fiala was, was a big name pro back then at Squaw. Um, and he kind of like took me under his wing a bit. Um, and then obviously Skogan and Kent Kreitler and JT Holmes, um, and uh, I mean, the list sort of goes on, Evan Raps. We, those guys were like sessioning in the park and throwing down on powder days. And I think we we're, I was sort of feeding off of that a little bit. I, I was still watching snowboard movies and skateboard movies more than I was watching ski movies at the time. But uh, when I saw, ski movies, I kind of saw this need for, it was like this sport was new, it was getting cool, but I knew, I knew what cool looked like in my head because of skateboarding, really, and snowboarding. And I was like, this needs to be refined, this could be so much cooler. And so that's really what drove how I wanted my form to look like in the air and what grabs I wanted to do and everything. So, um, it, and I did want it to be different than than what I was seeing at the time from like the Canadian Air Force. Um, so this was early, this was late 90s, like 99, 2000. Um, and then that same, basically that same year that I was ditching freestyle and skipping the contests, I got sponsored by Line Skis, um, which that's a whole nother story in and of itself. <laughs> um, and then I started to kind of go on trips with those guys and photo shoots. And that's, I mean, immediately I knew I wanted to be in the film side because in my mind, that was the best way to make an impact on changing the way the sport looked because if it, the guys who were doing the comps, like all the respect in the world, but it was already a spin to win situation. It was already, the trick, like they couldn't give a guy who did a really sick seven or a 900 the win when when somebody was already doing a 1440, right? Um, or, you know, if they were doing switch misty nine and just kind of chucking it, it was definitely gonna score better than like a really smooth 540. So anyway, um, and that the sport was evolving fast at that point, like really fast. Um, so yeah, I guess my thought process and in watching skateboard films, um, 
It's like the guys that are cool that are really doing their thing and making it look sick and have the best style are the guys who film their parts and get to put their energy into filming a video part. And so that's why I was like, screw the comps, man. Like this, that's, that's not going to change anything. Gotta make films. So who would you say, I mean, you mentioned like Clint took you under his wing. Who would you identify like, or would you uh, identify maybe one or two people that were kind of, if I say the word mentors to you, uh, were there one or two mentors? And then did you have at the time one or two favorite skiers? I mean, you've just named a list of a lot of obviously incredibly talented and accomplished skiers, but given what you've just said about what you were thinking about and, and uh, you know, the, and style and where you thought things were going, were there one or two people in particular where you're like that guy or girl that they're, they're onto something, you know? Yeah. I mean, hands down, Eric Pollard was that person. Um, he definitely influenced my skiing even maybe more than uh, I know. But, um, and, and he was like, you know, a few years older than me. And I was the little kid on the line team, like looking up to the dudes that were badasses like Skogan, um, and then and Mike Nick too. But so I'd say the, the mentors that took me under their wing, um, at first it was Clint. Um, Clint actually took me filming for the first time. Um, and we went out to... We went to Donner Pass to a famous zone where, where that had been in ski and snowboard movies for a long time. Um, and we filmed with TGR actually. And uh, yeah, I don't think anything that cool went down. Um, we hit this weird looking jump and I, I don't think I did anything on it really because I was kind of spooked. But <laughs> and, and I was 13, you know, I was tiny. Um, <laughs> And I hiked back there, like didn't have an Avi pack or anything, you know, it was just like in a, t in a, like a line moto Jersey <laughs> with my freaking park skis on my shoulder in the spring. But, and then, uh, um, Eric Iberg was hanging around in Tahoe that year. Um, he was already making films and he was, I think he, I mean, he liked what I was into. Um, so he was like an early supporter, uh, but yeah, so another mentor, the next sort of mentor was probably Skogan, I would say. Um, obviously, Mike Nick and Jason Leventhal were huge parts of, you know, that team and being, you know, older kind of leaders. Um, Jay, 100%, he organized all the shoots. He, I mean, he was basically running PR and marketing for the team, which was super cool because since that uh, team, I, I really haven't seen a team manager work as hard to get their athletes in the media as Jay did. Um, which it's like, okay, cool. You guys could be capitalizing on this so much more, but, uh, just cause I knew that cause Jay was such a badass. but yeah, Mike. And then Mike was sort of the one that my mom, like if Jay wasn't around, my mom would entrust Mike in taking care of her young, <laughs> young son on trips so um yeah and then from a from a cool perspective and like wanting to follow in the footsteps of it was probably more skogan and then pollard 
obviously. Yeah. It is funny hearing you say Pollard because I can't help but find myself thinking, you know, we're going to talk about this DPS Koala 119 ski. And I, this seems like kind of the opposite ski of an Eric Pollard ski. So, uh, but then again, I guess you were 13 at the time. So there's been a bit of a shift perhaps uh, in terms of uh, maybe what you're looking for, for a ski to do. So Pollard's influence was more so on just tricks in air. Um, and my mind was pretty centered around that at that age. But keep in mind, I grew up in skiing at Alpine and Squaw, um, which is much different than Hood Meadows, where he grew up. He, he was a real early part of, of that twin tip motion too, where he was from but it was different. Like they were skiing at some of those camps and things that were just snowboard camps at first, um, like high cascade and Wendell's and stuff. So anyway, I think that their influences and are much different, but I love hitting huge cliffs and that, that, you know, I was jumping off cliffs way before I saw a, a snowboard park, um, which is what it was called back then. And, uh, I still really thought big mountain skiing was cool too. Um, and then I remember even talking to Jay um, Leventhal at some point, like telling him I wanted to go to Alaska. And he's like, what, really? Um, you want to do that? You think you can do that? And I was like, hell yeah. You know, <laughs> like, uh, but I don't think anyone, I mean, nobody in the industry I don't think knew or thought of me as somebody who could be a big mountain skier because all I ever shot was park and the whole industry really was shooting park on the, on like the free ride side of things. I mean, if you look at the films from the early two thousands, everyone was filming in the park and the whole industry would go to these big park events and a lot of the movies, everyone would have the same shots in their movies from different angles. You know, it'd be park, parkosaurus and super park. And then we were all stuck there too. It was kind of easy. It was probably easier, you know, than going out in the back country. And that was a big push too, like Tanner and CR. And, and a lot of us were like, we've got, you know, we got to go shoot in the pow. We got to go build jumps, you know? Um, so when that shift happened and then when I started shooting with TGR, I was like, I can, I can ski big mountain too, you know, let me show you, um, which took a while. And I still don't know if I've shown people <laughs> that I can properly, but, uh, yeah. So the koala is not, <laughs> it's not an Eric Pollard influence ski by any means. No love what he does and love his vision but this ski is meant to like charge hard and ultimately somewhere deep in my roots is is hard charging comes first and then you layer on the tricks and the jumps and and then you got to be able to slay a massive face and stomp a huge air like that's my vision still for skiing is like massive massive cliff hits <laughs> with tricks with with tricks that that is a really good summation i think of uh sort of if if i had asked you to define your skiing style you just did uh and in, and in fact 
our managing editor, Luke Coppa, he wanted me to ask about your approach to hitting big cliffs. Are you somebody who is like scoping the line for days or months in advance, or does this stuff tend to be a bit more spontaneous than that for you? I actually don't like to scope that far in advance. I'm, I think I do much better when it's spontaneous or you just roll right up, see it, and then just kind of trust the instinct. Um, obviously that's not always the case. Um, and there are hits that I want to go back to or think about, but it seems like the more I mull it over in my head and really beat it down, it's like, not, I'm not going to stop it. <laughs> Sadly. But, uh, yeah. Um, I would say hundred percent. Um, I like to just roll up. I mean, even, even in AK, if I'm really feeling good and confident and trusting myself, which is a huge component of this, um, I don't need to take a picture of the line. I just can, and I ski better if I can just memorize it, just go up, get dropped off by the heli and just know exactly where I am and just drop in like full confidence. But um, obviously there's like some pretty hairy shit you got to take a look at um, on your on your what used to be a Polaroid now most likely your iPhone <laughs> um so yeah but I would say if I don't if I can just drop in without like overthinking it it goes better don't overthink no that's that's a good component for me because I I do overthink things I overthink things in life a lot so um what segments are you most excited about in this upcoming film? I might be, and this is very, very uncharacteristic of me, and I'm super hard on my skiing, and that I think has been part of the reason I'm, you know, I don't know where I'm at in my career, but uh, I really like the pow shots this year, um, and I think it's because of the koala, honestly. I'm, I'm not just trying to be geeky here, but... I've never liked my pow shots um, years past, and I never thought of myself as the guy who's going to go out and get the pow seg with CGR. Um, I just, for whatever reason, like diving my tips and getting those classic shots um, and having my style look the way I want it to just never came through. And, and I was on trips with TGR. I'd always be like, dude, I'm not pow shot guy. What do you want me to do in that field? Like, there's no way I'm going to get a shot. Like, <laughs> let's go find a cliff. Like, what am I going to do with that little freaking roller? You know what I mean? And, uh, those guys would laugh, like he needs more mountain. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> so yeah. And, and there were times where I'd be like over lining up a pow shot is actually really hard. Like the, it needs to be more the camera guy's vision because he's the one who can see what's going to look sick with the backdrop and how the, the little sh the tree, you know, alleyway lines up and how he's going to do his motion coming from behind a tree and a reveal or whatever it is. And you got to hit the mark, you know, and same thing with shooting stills. And there are people that have gotten really good at it. It is an art form um, that I just don't think that I've ever excelled at. And so I think the component of this that made it really cool for me 
was the fact that I could lean into my skis like a GS turn and like load up my skis in the PAL and, and arc turns and then actually dive my tips and not go over the bars. Whereas a lot of times in the past with super reverse camber skis that were also good for landing backwards and doing jumps, those ones wouldn't handle that stuff as well. But I wanted to have a twin tip because what if I want to land backwards? What if we <laughs> see a cliff? So um, anyway, I think the, the skis made a big difference. And then also um, the filming itself. Um, there, is, there are only a couple shots that are not follow cams. We, we did everything, um, you know, Eliel and Zach from Sweetgrass followed me with cameras and so every shot's motion and really cool angles and different than, I mean, I think people are doing it more and more, but I think we did something a bit different here and it's going to be noticeable when you watch the film. So those are, that's what I have to say. As far as like the hard, hardcore action, I always want better, but um, there's a few, there's a few spicy moments I think people will latch onto and be pumped on. Having watched your POW segments in Stone's Throw, I can concur with what you're saying. I mean, it is really like, it's it's hypnotic. I mean, it's it's mesmerizing. Like watching some of the POW segments in the film, it is, we use the expression a lot, like that's a, that's a make, makes you want to be there photo or that's a makes you want to be there segment. And like, we just finished up this 208 page buyer's guide. It's like, it's like, it's like just finishing like a master's thesis every single year. And so yesterday I finally like come out of, you know, get to emerge from the darkness and I'm walking around and it's gorgeous fall with the leaves changing here in Crested Butte. And I'm like, man, all I want to do is like ride my mountain bike and like not think about skiing for just a minute here. And then watching, then watching your POW segments from this new film, I'm like, I'm back in. Let's go POW skiing. Like, uh, so, uh, yeah, so th this is, I can't, I can't wait for more people to see it. But, uh, you know, for somebody who's like hearing you talk about your skiing style and your approach to skiing, which film segments of yours do you think best captures your style? I guess one of the segments that I'm probably most proud of that has like a good mix of everything and some big airs would probably be um, Dream Factory. Uh, I got the closing segment that year. I was nominated for Best Male Performance at the Powder Awards. Of course, the one year I was up, I was uh, nominated for that award, I was up against Candide and he had made his own movie. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, no biggie. Um, no chance, no chance at the at the title. But anyway, um, yeah, that one was good. Um, what other like big airs? I'm trying to think of just a big air that I was pumped on in the past. I was filming in Silverton, Colorado, in 2009, and it was my first like big 180 off a cliff into Pal that I like really stomped the piss out of it. It was, it was pretty big. I think you can find it online. Um, and yeah, I stomped, I mean, I stomped it. Like it was, <laughs> it was, it was clean. There was no like backwards wheelie, you know, like the, like the backseat when you're backwards, which just, just looks terrible on skis. Cause your <laughs> ass is just freaking 
out there. Yeah, so that none of that. Um, that one was a pretty good stomp, I guess. Uh, I don't know, man. I want to go bigger and stomp bigger shit, so that's that's why I can't come up with anything. Okay, and it, <laughs> and it it does seem like you you have the right tool for the job now with this Koala One Nineteen. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really. I mean, that's a huge part of wanting to design these skis with DPS. Is like, okay, I've got to get one of these massive sevens off a cliff. Um, it's gonna haunt me the rest of my life if I don't. I I you know I think I wrote this um, or mentioned this in our review of the Koala One Nineteen, but one of the things I still just think is super super cool is. That Koala One Nineteen is not like anything DPS has ever made, and and I just think that's a very cool thing, right? Like they're known for these lightweight carbon fiber skis, and I think to build something that is absolutely at the opposite end of the spectrum, I just think that's always really interesting from a from a manufacturer point of view. It's like, you know, I don't know. It's like if I can brew a great hoppy beer it's like well cool but like can you also brew an incredible stout you know or like shift like nail it in these different genres and um i just i think that's really cool and i think increasingly that's one of the things that impresses me about ski manufacturers is are you do you just kind of hit the same note again and again or can you actually nail these different genres of of skis. And, and I think in this case, they've done that. And, uh, I think you had a hand in that. <laughs> well, I don't know if you skied the first iteration, but they had already made one iteration. Um, when I started talking to them, um, that they were like testing and maybe, and then sold like a, a small batch of, cause that's what they do. Um, which was another part of the reason I liked their company because they could make, you know, s small specialty batches and like test the market and their consumer um, actually really likes that. Uh, I was I was concerned. I'm like, wait, you can come out with something and then change it? Because um, from a from a big brand perspective, that's that's really tough for them to pull off, um, and and the market would re respond differently. Uh, so anyway, yeah, we, I came in and um, we, I was impressed with what the ski looked like already when I first walked in. I was like, okay, this is actually closer than I thought. Um, and then I have some videos of the first day I skied it, um, but we, I was like ripping it in the park at Brighton. It was last fall, um, right when Brighton opened. And I, it was closer than I thought from a, from a ski perspective too, like, um, from a use case, uh, but, um, the thing that it really struggled with was ease of use and locking up on edge. Um, and my, my thought around that was, okay, this needs to be the first thing we need to focus on. And they had already, they already were in, in alignment with that, but, um, this ski, my goal was like, Hey, this thing needs to just be really easy to turn over and get on edge and stay locked up and finish a turn because that's going to be the first perspective that people have when they 
pull it out of the cellophane, mount it, and take it to the hill for the first time. They're not likely going to be dropping in on a wide open pow field the very first time they ski it. Um, and nor is it quite bent to be that either. It's, it's, it's supposed to be something that you can charge all over the mountain. So, and, and, a, and you know, be both a pow ski and a front side ski. So, um, that was my first and major goal. And so, uh, and then, you know, obviously I, I was, my perspective was if you're making a twin tip ski and you want to capture a twin tip audience or somebody who's going to be able to use it that way, we might as well make it a, more of a twin tip. So we raised the tail height as well um, and focused on a few things that might lend a better hand in, in landing things backwards, at least in the powder. Um, taking off backwards is easier than landing backwards. <laughs> so uh, that would be covered if you could do the la the, the former. So um, uh, that was, those were sort of the things we set out on accomplishing, but yeah, they had already put something pretty sick together. Um, and I could tell you like exactly what we changed from my perspective, if you're interested, but. I am interested. Well, so the, I guess <laughs> the specs change, uh, the specs stayed the same from, from tip, um, side cut, you know, radius, you know, center and tail, um, because we didn't want to have to change the bold and we knew we were close. So really what it, what it came down to is tweaking the flex profile, tweaking, you know, where, where stiffness you know meets the contact point and how that's going to help engage the ski differently um, and that these minor changes actually go a long way in ski design more so than i had realized before um, and so what we did really was find a balance um in, in widening the profile underfoot, if that makes sense. So if you were to lay the ski flat on a table, um, what the, the basically the width from base to top sheet um, got higher, and then we had a steeper drop in flex profile ahead of the toe from where it was before. It was more of an elongated um, taper, so to say in the flex profile to the contact point. So we, we found a, a spot where that dropped off a little quicker under the toe or just past the toe. And then, um, it became, you know, a little less material, I guess would be the way to describe it, um, at the contact point of the ski. And then we changed, uh, the amount of rocker slightly in just in the tail and then to, and then raise the tail height. Um, so in increased the amount of tail rocker and raise the tail height. So from, from the contact point, which we didn't want to move because that changes the radius, right? We, we didn't want to move that back or forward, but in raising the tail height itself, that, um, gave it a little bit more lift from contact point to where the like ramp kind of came up. And then, uh, the tail itself too, we really, which, which kind of 
this makes a ski a bit more of a directional ski in and of itself but we wanted to make sure that the tail had enough stability for stomping big airs um so we didn't we didn't want it to we didn't want to lose that platform back there but we we needed it to be able to release enough to be somewhat playful and not just be a, a plank you know so we that that was our our thought process in the curve that we chose you know in, in the flex that we that we over that we picked overall that we that we all tended to like the most but you know that doesn't sound like a whole lot of changing but it it took a lot it took a lot you know it took numerous days of testing and going back and forth with those guys and and looking at the bell curves and figuring out you know what we were going to do and what was going to make a difference and really it it came down to that like there's two ways to load up a ski and essentially in my mind and what i talked about with those guys and that's either rolling your ankle and getting it on edge and then just, you know, leaning forward enough to keep it lo the ski loaded. Or the other way, which is like slightly less intuitive, but happens probably more so than people think is just leaning forward. If you if you get up on one edge and the, or if you get up on one ski, just lift the other one up in the flats and you put your, all your weight in the front of your boot um, and don't, and try to keep the ski flat a ski that's really easy to ski will just lock up and turn. I don't know if you've noticed that, but like something with a, that's just made for a consumer to be really easy. Um, as soon as you put your weight in the ski, it just locks the edge up um, once you load it up and carve and starts to carve. So we wanted to be able to find a balance point within this where, where that would happen as well. So that, and that took a bit of refinement for sure. Oh, and then the, the um, 89 is 7% stiffer, which was just a decision that we made because we wanted to make the, the longer ski a harder charging big mountain ski. Um, so it's nominally stiffer by 7%. That's an important note. So the 189 is 7% stiffer than, does it go to 182? 184 and then there's a 79 as well okay okay yeah because that i mean that 189 and one of the things we've seen is that you know skis seemingly just continue to get like lighter and lighter and in a lot of cases less stiff this 189 koala 119 is now one of the burliest skis out there it is like that, that we've tested and, and, you know, gotten our hands on. And so I think that's always, I think really cool too. It's like, so if the 184, which, which we haven't been on, um, if that's dialed back a bit, I think that probably makes really good sense. And for those people who want like a burly ski, you're getting it in that 189. Yeah, totally. And, and I think, you know, really, it, it's pretty burly. I mean, it's pretty burly. So if you just love charging like hard on chopped up days, you know, or even four or five days after a storm, you know, and you can like, you want to make GS turns through a mogul field, this, this thing should probably be able to do it. <laughs> yeah. I had 
one of my most memorable days of last season, we were at Telluride and I was had the Koala 119 with me and hiked up Palmyra and got to the top of Palmyra Peak and I, we couldn't believe it. It was just like prime blank canvas. And uh, it, it, there'd been a big storm, I think it was, it was maybe six or seven days prior, but they hadn't opened Palmyra yet. And so we got up there and, you know, there was like settled pow. And I was just like, there's no other ski on planet earth right now. I'd rather be on than this thing. And uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was a good, the stars aligned that day. Um, That's cool, man. I, awesome. I, I can't say that I loved carrying that thing up on my shoulder up the hike, Palmyra, but man, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, dropping in, it was like, well, this is, th- this is, this is good. The stars have aligned. So, well, yeah. So I, I mean, I know not everyone feels this way, but, um, as you mentioned, um, skis are getting lighter, um, more rockered and boots are getting lighter and softer. And I'm struggling with that. <laughs> um, I think I, I'm not ready yet to adapt my skiing to that. Like a lot of guys I know and girls I know have, um, because even, even the best skiers in the world, and I don't need to name any names when they make that move to a softer ski, softer boot, you can see, I can see it in their skiing. Um, I've seen some of my favorite big mountain skiers of our time, you know, switching to AT gear so that they can hike, which is obviously like, okay, that's a, that's a cool switch in the sport that, you know, human powered. I mean, for many reasons, it's great. Um, but when you look at them ski down, there's a lot more sliding They're Like they might be charging just as fast, but they're either sideways or pointing it. Um, and their hips sort of swing out a bit more and their turns don't look like they can let up the gear because they can't. Um, and so it's a bit more just that balancing in the middle and trying not to get backseat or too far forward. Um, and I just crash when it comes to that, uh, moment because I don't, I haven't figured out how to just tweak myself into that safety skiing. I call it just trying not to fall. Um, because I still just, my body just wants to lean forward and load up my ski and like arc a turn. Um, and I just think that if we, you know, if we want to preserve that beauty in a turn, in the turn itself that, that I think we all latched onto when we were younger, or I don't know, you know what I'm talking about. Just a really beautiful turn. When you see somebody make one, you know, they have it. You know what I mean? You're like, that guy's got it. And and it's just, (laughs) There's not that many people out there. There's a lot of good skiers. There's a lot of guys that can charge crazy stuff, but there's a smaller percentage of those those people out there that can just like effortlessly lean into a turn and just arc and make such a beautiful mark, you know? Um, and so that that's, that's where my head's at with it. It's, um, I still like to ski a race boot. Um, 
and uh, I was touring in in Doberman 130 <laughs> race stock boots, um, World Cup boots this year in this film that I made um, with Dukes because I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. Um, this year, wait, were you were you you were in Doberman 130s on Dukes on the Koala 119? Yes. That's officially the heaviest touring setup of all time. Yeah. Full, I, full stop. I hiked coal pit head wall. Um, <laughs> for the, I've never done that before that hike. And it was pretty, it's pretty burly. It's one of the burlier, you know, hikes, I guess, in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And I hiked that in that, on that setup. Um, I was definitely not leading the pack. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm kind of a slow hiker anyway, but probably because partially because I rock the heavy setup, but yeah, no, I'm a performance guy through and through. Like I just can't, I haven't figured out a way to give that up mentally or a setup. have the time to put in, to figure out a setup that's going to work like, like Hoji, you know, Hoji's tinkered for years to, to find his light setup that he can charge on, but he's also way lighter than me Yeah, <laughs> yeah. as a, as a person. So yeah, man, I, yeah, that's how I feel. And, but the cool thing about this ski and DPS is that now that those guys like to start, start on that aggressive side, they've told me that. Um, and they've, they've been, I guess, sort of known for that in the past. I, I haven't skied their, their skis for years. So I don't know that last year was my first year skiing it. And I really put my focus on the koala. So I didn't ski. I, I've skied numerous of their other skis, but I haven't skied all of them. And I don't know their whole line super well from that perspective. Um, because I'm a guy who likes to ski one ski. It's crazy. I ski one ski and I like to ski all year. And I want to know that thing, uh, without thinking about it when I drop in on something gnarly. So that's why. Um, and I just, yeah, I mean, I skied in all conditions and that's, that's another reason why I guess it's designed the way it was. But I will say that DPS has some insane technology on the forefront um, that, that, and I don't know if you know about some of their new construction and materials that they're using with that foam, um, but that stuff is unreal. I got to test some of those foam skis this year and they're lighter than anything I've ever put under my feet and they like perform well like you can you can lock up a turn and charge so i'm pretty excited for the future i don't know what exactly from a construction standpoint in in the fold for the koala but i know we're making some changes um and i've already you know we want to expand the line a little bit too so um hopefully we can do some really cool stuff and maybe there'll be a lighter one interesting um, that you can slap a Duke on and go tour in your Doberman 130s. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me neither, actually. Um, let's bring it back to Stone's Throw. Was all the filming for Stone's Throw done uh, around Salt Lake? Yep. Um, the premise was to keep it local. Uh, I wanted to, for the first film that I did with DPS, do everything locally, um, ski the ski locally that was made locally. And, and then, uh, I, I also, 
you know, since I've been filming for years with Teton Gravity Research and other people prior to that, um, you know, like 20 years or something, <laughs> I wanted to do something at home. I had felt like I was missing the connection between my resort that supports me um, from a, you know, shoot, shot, you know, shooting stills and or film stuff locally. So, and, and even just the people, you know, you, you show up three, six, seven days a year for a full day of skiing, not just like an hour. Um, and you don't really connect with the local, you're not connecting with the local crew and the chargers that, you know, you know, they're like, you even live here, you know? So, uh, I wanted to be able to ski here more. Um, and then, yeah, I got everything's local about the film. So we, we kept everything right here. I mean, it's basically filmed between Brighton and Alta and Snowbird, like part of, part of Snowbird. So it's, it's, yeah. So it's a pretty small geographic area, but there's a lot of sick stuff that we forget about. And I mean, I also just from a, like a little bit deeper layer, um, I think a lot of us in the professional kind of tier, it's like, we keep, we always think about, okay, I can't just film what I want to film at the local resort. I got to go, I got to get out there. I, I, my eyes, you know, our eyes are set on deeper, further, higher, you know, like you got to get to some crazy place and it's got to be on something that people haven't seen before. And I got to ski something different. And I was like, I'm not going to let this situation that I've come into change my, my dreams and aspirations about making ski films. Um, I, which I guess is my overarching goal, um, as we talked about in the very beginning. And so how could I do that now that I took on another job and have two kids? How can I be a dad, provide for my family, which we know is hard in the ski industry, um, as an aging professional skier who's been doing it for 20 years, um, and then, and still create, you know? And so I had to change my mindset about it. And I was just, I was thinking like, you know what, if I could work with DPS and then I could do the product design stuff I want to do and we could do it all here. And then we could make this like skate style content to put out on Instagram and it wouldn't feel so forced because I, I have a love hate relationship with social media and mostly around the fact that it's like, what do I say? What do I put out there? I don't feel good about this. So if we could create some cool stuff, then we, then it would happen naturally in the skis. We wouldn't have to come up with some marketing story. We could just make badass skis and tell the story about the process and film it and put it out there and people will like latch on, you know? Um, and then from a film production standpoint too, it was like, how can I look at this stuff from a different angle? So I got excited about the DPS thing. And then I was like, cool, I don't need to go to AK. There's sick stuff right in front of me. And when I flipped that switch and got excited, I was able to like take the chair up at Alta and look at the stuff that I've looked at for years, but see it in a different way. Like, oh my God, I could go hit no name 
and that is a shot. Like if I do that trick on that, I, that's a shot. Or if we shoot it this way at the resort, that's worthy. So we ended up shooting a lot at the resort um, and just really close by, which I think is super cool because nobody thinks along those lines that much anymore. Well, Dash, this has been fun. I appreciate the conversation. And uh, I feel like we we just wove like a bunch of ski history and thoughts on ski films and approaches to those and ski design. This all got interwoven and stitched together, I think, in a pretty, pretty cool way. Um, this was fun. And uh, Stone's Throw, people will be able to find online tomorrow, October 8th. And... Um, First off, you need any convincing that the the trailer is gorgeous, right? It's a one minute trailer that is beautiful, and uh, I can say from you know seeing more of the film beyond the the trailer, there's a this is a fun one and a good one. And like I said, I I watched it and I went immediately from like cool, I'm looking forward to riding my bike, you know, for the next month or two to being like I cannot wait to get back and skiing pal. So uh uh, if, if anybody wants that, uh, that boost, here you go. Cool. Yeah. That's, <laughs> I guess that's the, that's the goal, man. P- get people excited to ski. Well, sweet. I really appreciate it. I, I think, uh, this was, it, although we covered a lot of stuff, I, it just seemed like the surface to me. So <laughs> I, think, I think, I think that might be right. So, uh, and, uh, we, we already know from, you know, a previous conversation, there's, there's some other topics we have not touched on that definitely deserve being touched on at some point. So uh, we'll see about circling back to, uh, to some of those down the line. All right, cool. Thanks a lot. Talk soon. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to Dash for the conversation. And you can check out the show notes of this episode for a link to the trailer of Stone's Throw. I also want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. Now, please take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.